I canceled meet and greet. Normally we do a meet and greet. No meet and greet. We're talking about heaven and hell today. Um, actually, we'll talk about hell next week uh, since it's Mother's Day. We'll save that for next week. Make sure to invite all your friends. Uh, it'll be a message specifically dedicated to the doctrine of hell. Today we will just be talking about heaven. Uh, but in order to do so, uh, we sort of have to deconstruct heaven and then reconstruct it, build it back up, because um, when we picture heaven, more often than not, what comes to our mind are pictures from culture and history and even cartoons rather than what the actual Bible is saying. So in a moment, I'm going to have you like forget everything you know about heaven. Before we do that, though, I want you to do an exercise and just be honest, honest with yourself. I want you to think about heaven, picture it. And picture the first thing, I mean, what are the first things that come to your mind? Don't, don't try to give like a good Christian answer like, I see Jesus there. I mean, if you do, great, but just honestly, you think of heaven, what comes to your mind? Give you a second. How many of you saw clouds, just being honest? Like, yeah, big chunk of people see clouds. And it's like, there was a choir there maybe? Choirs there singing, singing songs. Many of you picture, because of art and culture, like little angel babies. Whenever heaven is depicted in Western art, it's, they often have these little, little pale, chunky kids with wings. It's like in heaven, I, I guess the, the, when it says there shall be no sun, they, it is literal, I guess, because, man, those kids, they should be up in the sky getting some sun, being a little bit darker than that. Mom's probably overprotective. Least you know, they're well-fed. All the little angel babies are always well fed. When I pictured heaven, growing up as a child, I was afraid of it. It scared me, like really scared me. It terrified me for a number of reasons. I don't know all the reasons, but certainly some of, some of it had to do with the, the longevity. You know, there's this one super scary song we sing. It's called Amazing Grace. Um, it has that line. When we've been there 10,000 years, we've just begun. You've been there 10,000 years and you've just begun? Can you picture doing anything for 10,000 years and still, like, being engaged, having fun with it? Like, picture your favorite, what's your favorite thing to do? Do it for 10,000 years. You're over it. You're over it. You don't even last, like, 48 hours, you're over it. It's like, dude, 10,000 years and we've just begun? That's scary to me. Also, however I pictured heaven, it was divorced from all the good things about this earth that I know and love. So this world is fallen and broken. There's a lot that's wrong with it. But there's things that we love about it. And however we picture heaven, we often picture heaven divorced of those things. So for me, I, I love fishing. Well, there's, there's no pain in heaven, so I can't be hooking fish through their mouth. And I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm not a catch and release dude. I'm going to catch, and I want to cook that thing and eat it. So I'm going to catch that fish, bleed it, gut it, fry it up. Well, I can't do oh, There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no death in heaven. Or what about how many of you like to do an activity that causes an adrenaline rush? Something like dirt biking. Okay? You do dirt, you do. Why do you like it? Because inherent in the activity is a pickup of the heart rate, an adrenaline rush. And why do you get that? Because there's danger. There's actually a threat of danger there. Well, you can't have danger in, in, in heaven. 
You can't die. There's no suffering. So all of a sudden, these things that we know and love about our earthly experiences are completely divorced from the heavenly reality. Some of you love technology. Like when new things come out, new technology. Oh, man, I can't wait to get this. Well, heaven, it's not going to have any of that because it's perfect. You don't need any new technology. If there is technology, it's already all perfectly invented. Some of you like making a new technology. We won't need that. So, so however I pictured it as a child, it affected my desire to actually go there. And if we're honest with ourselves, maybe some of you aren't afraid of heaven or terrified of it, but there's this idea that I'm not, I'm not sure I'm going to like it. You know, there's this, this, this feeling that somehow we're just going to be doing the same thing for all eternity. So what I'd like to do is deconstruct the images of heaven that we have, and then sort of rebuild the concept of heaven. And even just using the word heaven, we have to kind of break that down because heaven is not the final destination. The Bible has an image of what the final destination of all believers look like, and it's not necessarily heaven. We'll get to that later. The three massive categories that cause confusion when it comes to heaven are on the, on the slides. First, when we picture heaven... We often think of a static reality, not a dynamic reality. We also primarily think of heaven as being a spiritual place, not a physical place. And we also think of heaven as we need to go up there rather than heaven coming down. And so I want to look at these three categories, show you how we've picked up thoughts and images from culture and maybe just around church even, but they're not necessarily rooted in Scripture. What do I mean first by static and dynamic? Static is that which is still. It doesn't move. There's nothing new when something is static. Something that's dynamic has movement and change. There could be newness to it. Now, this ties directly into our understanding of perfection. One of the things you need to realize is the way the Bible paints the image of the final destination, heaven for now we'll call it, is that it's, it's like the new and better version of Eden the Garden of Eden. So oftentimes, how we picture Eden and the garden and creation before sin informs our view of heaven. And when we picture Eden, the garden, we often have been told to picture something that is perfect, right? You know how the story goes. In the beginning, God creates the heaven and the earth, and the earth was perfect without sin. Now, question, and it's sort of a trick question, when God created earth, the Garden of Eden, did he create it perfect? Did he create a perfect Eden? Now, part of this has to do with how you define perfection. And this is why oftentimes we are picturing a static reality because we are picturing a perfect reality. Perfection is that which cannot be improved upon. If something is perfect, it cannot become any better. So the question is, when God created the garden, did he create it perfect? Or could the garden actually become better? Now, let's turn to Genesis. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. We don't have time to go through all of Genesis chapter 1, but suffice to say, God creates pairs in Genesis chapter 1. There's heaven and earth, night, day. There is land, sea, and at the climax of you have male and female. 
Now, all of these things are sort of opposite, land, sea, night, day, but they're meant to come together, like in a marriage. Heaven and earth are supposed to be married. Land and sea, male and female, are literally supposed to come together in marriage. Now, after God creates on these consecutive days, there's usually a declaration that's given. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Good. Hebrew word tov, we've talked about this in the past. So God creates, and it is good. On the sixth day, God creates human beings, and he has another declaration. God saw that everything he had, that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So God creates on days one, two, three, four, five, and he declares it to be what? Good. Tov. On the sixth day after human beings are created, now it's very tov, very good. Which means there are degrees of goodness in the created order. Meaning there can be introductions of new and better or more good things into creation. Creation is not absolute perfection. Absolute perfection is that which cannot be improved upon. But can creation be improved? See how our categories are messed up? Because we're like, well, no, God created it, so it can't be improved. Well, what if God designed it with potential? Here's the key word. Creation is loaded and teeming with potential. Creation has the ability to have more and more good things introduced into it. So, not only does God introduce something that's very good on day six, he then gives human beings the task of introducing more and more goodness into his creation. So, Adam and Eve are given what? A job, a vocation. They are supposed to tend the garden. They're supposed to grow this garden, make it bigger and more beautiful. And they're also supposed to, what's the first command of the, in the scriptures? It's very important. Be fruitful and multiply. They are supposed to make more good little image bearers that occupy all of creation. Creation designed by God is loaded with potential. It does not exist in an absolute perfect state. Why? There's only one thing that can actually exist in pure perfection. God, because God is a being which cannot be improved upon, and he can't lose his perfection. He can, it's like God has no potential, and he, can't, he has no potential to lose perfection, because if he had the ability to lose perfection, then there would be an imperfection within his nature. So God is the only being that's absolutely perfect that cannot be improved upon. But God does create a world loaded with potential. And for human beings, that's like the best possible world for us. Why? We love creating and introducing new and good things into the world. Think about all, all the things th th that we love, things that you love to do. Think about children. What do, what do children do as soon as they have the cognitive capacity to do anything? Give them blocks. They want to build. They want to paint, they want to draw, they want to create. They want to go outside and play and feel the dirt. They want to discover new things. You ever watch a little kid discover something? Oh my gosh, their mind is blown. Or if 
they find a new bug that they've never seen. You, you get this, though. Human beings have an incredible desire to build, to create, to organize, to manage, to adventure, to discover. That's what it means to be human. So when God creates a world for human beings, it's loaded with the potential to do so. The opposite, although it might be perfect, would be a static reality in which no change could occur. So picture a, we'll pretend there's a museum, and this museum is the greatest museum ever. And in the greatest museum ever, it has the top 50 paintings that have ever been painted. It's the best of the best. And the leaders, the owners of the museum say, this is the best museum with the top 50 paintings in the world. Why would anyone ever want to go to the second place museum, the third place museum? Or it's like, why would anyone want to go to Gilroy, California, where they have the, what, it's number 1,147 on the list of cool museums. No one wants to go to these museums. They want to go to the best. So how about we close down all museums around the world and we only have the perfect museum? with the top 50 paintings in human history. And then the leaders of the museum would say, even more so than that, we have the, the top 50 paintings. We have the best of the best. Our museum now, with the 50 best paintings in the world, is absolute perfection. And because it's absolute perfection, why should we change it? So, we're not gonna ever add any new paintings, and we're not gonna get rid of any, any paintings, because it's the best. Now, you can imagine going to that museum, and the first time, it's probably pretty cool. Maybe the second time pretty cool, but after a few times you've seen it all, no change, no new creation, no dynamic anything, just static still stagnancy, you're bored out of your mind. It's like those of you who get season passes to Disneyland and you've gone on every ride all of the time, even the magical kingdom is no longer magical, just wait, well, Star Wars land's coming, then it'll be cool again. Because you've seen it all, you've done it all again and again and again. Imagine if you're a painter and your dream is to, to create one of the greatest paintings ever painted. You have no hope of getting in that museum because that museum is supposedly perfect and in its perfection it cannot change. Now, God doesn't create that type of museum. God didn't create that type of world. He created a world loaded with potential, the ability for image bearers to create new things, to build new things, to discover new things, to adventure. And all the things you know and love are bound up in that. That's what you love doing. That's what it means to be human. And so however we're picturing heaven, it's not static. It's not steel. It is the new garden, the new Eden, the new creation, loaded with potential for human beings, image bearers, to continue to create, explore, and adventure. Now, this is directly tied in with the second part, spiritual, physical. Oftentimes, we picture heaven as a 100% spiritual reality. It's like God's domain, God's domain, the spiritual domain, is completely spiritual, and we're here on earth, and we're in the physical world where there's physical reality, materiality. And we think that that spiritual world is far off, somewhere far off, God, heaven, that reality, like maybe you go through a wormhole, different dimension, and you can find that place, but it's not close. On top of that, we often think that the spiritual world is good, and the physical world, well, that's, what's, that's, that's, 
That's the broken one. That's where sin is. Sin is in the broken, fallen world. And the scripture does not describe existence like that. The spiritual realm is not far off. The spiritual realm overlaps ours. It's not a distinct reality somewhere to be found. It's, it's overlaid on us. So in scripture, there's a story where a prophet prays that people's eyes would be opened. And God opens their eyes and they see a multitude of angels, spiritual beings. The angels, the spiritual realities are not in another place that we can't find. They're right here. Secondly, it's not as if the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. The spiritual world has demons, evil beings in rebellion to God. The physical world is not all that's bad. Sin has infected it, but remember, God in creation creates Adam and Eve with human bodies, and he says it's very good. Now, this is incredibly important. The final destination for Christians is not a disembodied spiritual reality. It is an embodied physical reality. See, cartoons teach us, you know when Sylvester the cat dies, he becomes a little blue spirit, and he goes up into heaven, and he's got like angel wings. Cartoons teach us that you go to heaven as a spirit, and then you be with God forever. The Bible is saying when you die, you are a spirit that goes to be with God, and there you wait patiently for the resurrection, where you will be given a new body. Human beings are physical creatures. When you're just in a spirit realm with God, you are incomplete. Human beings are meant to be embodied, physical materiality. Now, this is, this is, this is why it's important, so hopeful. Again, just like the static dynamic section, all the things you know and love are embodied. Everything you love about the human experience is embodied. What do you like to do? Whatever it is, it's a physical activity. So for some of you, like me, it's fishing. And raise your hand if you like fishing. You good fish? Okay. That's a decent amount at this church. I knew this church was, there's a reason why it's doing so. When Jesus wants to make righteous disciples, who does he choose? It's fishermen. It's fishermen. Peter, fishermen. There's some tax collectors in there too, but they're just, they're just included for grace. Um, so if you fish, the reason why you love to fish, number one reason, whether you've ever thought about this or not, it's your pole stands still and you wait and wait and then you get the da 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 The feeling, the, it, it's physical. That pulling, you love it. If you love dirt biking, it's the rush of adrenaline. It's your heart rate picking up. And why does that happen? Because there's, like we said, there's, there's a potential for danger. What about you who love to endurance run? It's crazy. It's probably people, that's the one I never understand, but people, oh, I just love running for miles and miles and miles. And I'm like, where? It doesn't matter. What do you mean it doesn't matter? Where you go, like, can you win? No. Well, yes, because I'm running against me. <laughs> like, you don't beat anybody? But why do you love it? What are you doing in endurance running? You are pushing your body. What are you doing with weightlifting? You are tearing muscle fibers. These are all physical embodied activities that you know and love, but we've been trained to think whatever heaven's like, well, there can't be any pain. The Bible says there's no pain or suffering. So that means I can't weight lift because the, uh, part, of, part of that is the tearing down of, of, of muscles, and that can't happen. 
And I can't fish because I can't have hooks and fishes. And, and I can't dirt bike because, well, I can dirt bike, but it won't be fun because I know, oh, if I fall, it won't hurt. No big deal. Or what about sports? In the old paradigm of heaven, you can't have sports. You can only have like t-ball sports. Why? Because sports involve losing. And in heaven, there's no losers. You think about it. Or, Homer, come here. Come on stage. You want to come? You, you brave enough to come on stage? I'm going to show you a game we used to play that can't happen in heaven. Okay. Be brave. You didn't think you were getting on stage. Sorry. Okay. Do you know this game? Yes. You know this game. How many know this game? Look. Okay. You can play this game for hours having fun. If you don't know how this game is goes, I'm not going to do it, but I'm, I'm just going to slap his hand, and his goal is to remove it before I can get it. Or? Or like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, and then... So say I slap it. I could keep slapping until, pull your hand away. Oh, now it's his turn. Then it's like, and then he goes, bah, and it hurts. Thank you, the wonderful, wonderful job. Why do we play that game? There's a potential that it hurts. And whenever, if you've played it, like, it's like, oh, dude, oh, dude. It's like all red, and you're, you're having the time of your life. It's like blistering up. Well, doesn't hurt. My physical resurrected body has no sensation of pain. No sports, no, no adventure, no discovery, no adrenaline, no, no heart rate p- picking up. See, you've pictured heaven divorced from a physical body. When the Bible says heaven, the final destination, will be a place with no suffering and no death and no tears, it is not saying that your physical body will have no sensation to experience any of the sensations that you know and love in your earthly experience. It's talking about there being no death and famine and war. The biblical authors live in a brutal time. We have no idea what it's like to live in the ancient world. The death rates among children, I mean, everyone had lost a child. Like seriously, think about that. Pretty much, statistically, everyone had lost a child in their life. Life expectancy, war, experiences, famine, all of this stuff. So when the biblical authors are picturing the final destination, the new creation, they're saying things like, there's no tears, no pain, no suffering. But whatever that reality is, it is still a physically embodied reality. God created Adam and Eve before the fall with a body. And all the things you know and love are always embodied, whether it's singing or dancing or fishing or playing the slap game. Those things are important to us. Now this ties into what the prophet Isaiah pointed to. Isaiah pictures the final destination. In, 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 in the Bible, the, the final destination is called new heavens, new earth. That's why I said earlier heaven is a little misleading because the final destination is heaven and earth being married once again. No separation. In the garden, where did God dwell? With humans. He walked among... So there's a marriage between heaven and earth. Earth divorces heaven. Earth rebels against heaven and God's rule and there's a divorce, there's a separation. By the way, the place, the one place in the Old Testament where heaven and earth still kind of marry is in the temple where God's presence dwells. 
So Isaiah is prophesying about the final destination, and he calls it new heavens, new earth. And it's a marriage scene between the two. And they describe it as the old and former things of heaven and earth passing away and the stuff that remains to be true and good being made new. And we have to check ourselves on how we understand the word new because we're modern people. And when modern people get something new, what do we do with the old? You throw it away. So for instance, if if your shoes get holes in them, what do you do? Throw them away and you get new shoes. For most of human history, what did you do? There's a shoe uh, fixer-upper dude, the shoe repairman. And every town had a shoe repairman and you went and got your shoes fixed. And when you got them, they were new again. So there's a renewal type of thing, not a getting, this is important. We think new means destruction of old and something brand new entirely that's completely distinct from the old. When the Bible talks about newness, there's discontinuity and continuity. There's a passing away of that which is bad and a renewal of that which is good. And so Isaiah says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the the cry of distress. So again, there's no crying or weeping, but that's not to say your physical body has no sensation that you would be familiar with in in your earthly experience now. In the new creation, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. So in the new creation, the images that were given are of what? Building new houses, agriculture, planting things, eating things. And then there's a line about work. Did you catch it? They're going to enjoy work. That, that's, that's important. They're going to enjoy work. First, there will be work. You got a job in new creation. Two, you will enjoy it. Think about the story the Bible is telling. Why is that significant? In Genesis, the curse means that work is hard and laborious. You don't want to do it. Even though those of you who have good jobs that you like, it's like, this is the best job I could ever imagine. There's still some days you hate it. New creation, work is enjoyable. That's a reversing of the curse found in Genesis. He goes on, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Dust shall be the serpent's food. The symbol symbol of rebellion, the serpent, the dragon, he no longer finds nourishment. Dust is his food. This is a poetic way of saying Satan can no longer wreak havoc on God's people in the new creation. No more suffering, no more evil. And so when the Bible pictures the end of all things, it pictures followers of Jesus living in a dynamic world that's teeming and loaded with life and potential, the ability to discover and to create. It also pictures it as a spiritual, physical reality 
You are given a physical resurrected body. You are a spirit, but that spirit is embodied. And that's good news because all the things you love can still cross over. When I was a little kid picturing this, all of those things weren't allowed in heaven. If you were in church long enough back in the day, they, they, used, to, they used to tell you, like, there's only one genre of music, too. It's like the most perfect genre of music. Like, rock and roll definitely wasn't allowed there. It's like, what? Even think about, okay, think about perfection like this. If only perfection is allowed, then the most perfect song is the song that we'll be singing for all eternity because you dare not bring the second best song to God. But that's not, it's not the world God is creating. Lastly, and this ties them all together, is the Bible is picturing new creation not as a destruction of this earth because it's so horrible and then God saves some Christians and he takes them up as spirits into heaven to live with him. The Bible is telling you that there's going to be new heavens and new earth, and ultimately, the new city from heaven is going to come down, and it's described as a marriage scene between the two realities. The reason why this is important is it has to do with the character of God. You have to ask yourself, did God create the earth, and then it went bad? And then he's like, man, my project failed miserably. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to start something new and different over here, and I'm going to save some people, and then I'm just going to destroy that project. You know, the Bible says that creation, the earth, longs to be redeemed. Creation itself is longing for redemption. So the question is, does God look at creation and go, "Ah, that messed up, fire and brimstone, and then something brand new over here? Or is the Bible telling you a story of a God who's committed to reconcile, reconcile, restore, and renew all things? Is it a God who gives up on his project or a God who's committed to see the project through? Here's some verses from the last pages of Scripture in the book of Revelation. And the Apostle John, the Apostle John sees the final destination. He describes it like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The former things of them are falling off, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem. At first in Genesis, there's a garden. At the end, there's a city. A new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This language echoes what happens to you as a Christian. When you become a follower of Jesus, a part of you dies. The former things pass away, and that which is good and needs to be carried over is made new or born again. When you become a Christian, something dies and something is made new. One day, God is going to do that for all of creation. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. So, when you picture heaven, you have to picture it as a dynamic reality. You have to picture it as a physical, spiritual reality. And you need to picture a God who just doesn't zap a few of us up before he destroys all things. You picture a God who is making a new heavens and new earth and will bring them together, as was the original plan in Genesis 1.1. Now, what are the implications for that? This is the, the fun part. And this is, much of this is speculation, so don't go and quote me like this is what the Bible says. This is based upon what the Bible has revealed, these are things we could think about. So the things you love, part of those are going to be renewed. There's going to be like a better version of those in heaven. You'll be given a physically resurrected body. You're not just a spirit. You're a spirit designed to have a body. What will those bodies look like? don't know. We have some hints from Scripture. What will life look like? We don't know. We have some hints. But think about this. You ever wonder why God created the universe as big as it is? We're on earth. To us, it's big, but in the reality, the big scheme of things, earth is not that big. Get those those science documentaries and stuff on on TV like there are 1,000 billion trillion to the trillionth power galaxies and each galaxy has 40 billion trillion planets it's like it's like your mind can't even comprehend it Bible says all of creation longs for redemption if God created all of that for his glory it's possible that it's just there to to declare his glory and sing praises for all eternity But it also wouldn't surprise me that when God makes all things new, he created the world so big that his image bearers are supposed to do to to earth, to all of creation. Meaning, what are we supposed to do on earth? To adventure, to discover, to create, to participate with. What if all those planets that we hear about are there because for all eternity, God created a cosmos so big that we will be continually, forever and ever, finding new things, adventuring, going to new places. Think about planets filled with animals that we, we've never even seen. Remember when you were a child, you found that new bug, and it was super cool? You go to a new planet, and there's just things you never could have imagined before. New food. Think about that. Because some food is cursed, right? You know, like because of the fall? Like Brussels sprouts and beets? <laughs> things is cursed, man. You're going to go to a planet and the beets taste good. And the new creation. I mean, I don't know. This is speculation. But there's, there's a whole world to adventure and to discover and to find. And think about how we build things. I mean, in heaven, do we just have the perfect songbook? And these are the songs we praise God with. Or for all eternity, will image bearers be able to create better and better music? What museum do you want to go to? The one with the top 50 paintings or a museum that continues to get better so every time you experience it, it's like a new, fresh experience? New music. Now think about this. You've got a resurrected body. 
the reality you experience is experienced through a filter, the filter of your senses. How many senses you have? It's a trick question because it's five, but ever since that one movie, everyone thinks there's six. You You have five senses. You experience all of reality through that. What if in the new creation God gave you another sense? Can you picture that? You can't. Because the only reality that you can picture is a reality that's filtered through your five senses. You can't even picture it. But what if God were to give you another sense or two? What if you had eyes to see all that there was? Because you know you don't see everything. The majority of light that's in this room, you are not seeing. It's outside of what the, hum- the human eye can. There's colors, all beautiful colors. <laughs> flowers, by the way. Many flowers give off ultraviolet light that our eyes can't see as human beings. But guess who can see them? Who can see the ultraviolet light on the flowers? Honeybees. And honeybees see bright ultraviolet purple light and they know that's the runway. That's where they're supposed to land. There are colors you have yet to experience. There are sounds you have yet to experience. What if our music, the system of music that we engage with is just like a limited piece of what music would be in the new creation? What if you could experience music through different senses? Because music primarily what we hear it. What if you saw music? You think it's kind of sounding weird, but what, what, is, what is music? It's sound. What is sound vibrations? What if you actually be able to experience music on a visual level? We have no idea what God has prepared for us. It will be embodied, it will be dynamic, but it is going to be absolutely amazing and incredible. And as my opinion is that we'll get to explore and create and discover for all eternity. The best music is yet to be written. Think about that. Lastly, question that's super important for everybody. What, we know what life might be like, but what about the ones we've loved? Now, again, some of this is speculation, but we, we can infer some things from Scripture. We don't know what the final resurrection will look like completely. God's going to give us bodies, new bodies. We don't know exactly what that will look like. But we get a hint. Because even though the resurrection is on the last day, someone did rise first, alone, by himself, to give the world a foretaste of what the future reality would look like. Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation, the first fruits of the resurrection. So we get a glimpse of what resurrected life looks like in Jesus. And what does it look like? There's continuity and discontinuity. Remember the shoe? It's like your shoes are made new. What Jesus' resurrected body, do people recognize him? Sort of, yes. Sometimes they're like, who is that? And then sometimes they're like, Jesus. And you wonder why, because you, you have these questions about your loved ones, right? Like, um, Grandpa died when he was 93 years old. I didn't know what he looked like 20 years before that. So will I recognize grandpa? Because I know grandpa doesn't want 93-year-old grandpa body in heaven. You know? Actually, right after about 32, 
no one wants, because that's when you start to die. You're, you hit 30 and then you begin to die. It's just that you only live for 20 years and it's all death. It's like, I don't know what the resurrected body looks like, but most likely it's the most good version of you. So picture yourself in your prime. Now, some of you, again, are arrogant. It's like, <laughs> let me just take a selfie to see myself in my prime. Your, your prime is still a body that's infected with sin and brokenness and disease. You don't have the most pure version of yourself. So when Jesus resurrects, he's the most pure version of that physical body that's not tainted with any of the things of this, this earthly brokenness. And so, likewise, speculation, but most likely, our loved ones will be able to recognize, but it's, it's, it's like the best possible embodiment of that person. And so with Jesus, at first, you, you, you need a second glance. And so maybe when you see someone that you've been longing to see, you see him and you go, is that? And you can't tell at first, but they know who you are. And, you know, they, they give that smile that you would recognize in an instant. And, and then the little dimple comes out that you recognize. And then they laugh in a way that you know exactly who you're with. See, there's continuity and discontinuity. It's embodied. So, like with my kids, I, um, when I hold their hands, I'll... Uh, squeeze like twice, just real quick, and it, that means I love you. It's an embodied experience. And some of you had maybe not a squeeze twice thing, but you knew exactly how dad hugged you. You knew exactly how grandma held you. You knew exactly how mom, when you weren't feeling good, would rub the back of your head. And in the new creation, we have bodies and you'll go to embrace your loved one, and the embrace will be a very familiar embrace. It'll be something you've been longing for for a long time, and you never forgot it, because it was just that one way. It was just the one way mom hugged me, and it was unlike any other hugs. Those things are what it means to be human. They're brought over. Will we recognize their voice? Yeah, we'll recognize their voice. How do I know that? Because there's a woman who's crying at the tomb of Jesus. She's weeping. And Jesus comes to her. And at first she's too overwhelmed. She doesn't know what's going on. But then he says one word. Jesus says one word, and the woman knows exactly who she's talking with. Remember what he says? He calls her by name, Mary. And she instantly, Rabbi, it's you. And then the question that Jesus is asking all of us who have this hope, why, why are you weeping, Mary? Why are you weeping? And there's an embrace that she recognizes, a voice that she recognizes. And all the pain that was put upon Jesus' body is, is done away with. The suffering part of it is no more. And make no mistake about it, there, there's... You know, part of the, the hard part about death is, is that the last decade of someone's life could be miserable. And some of you who have lost loved ones, I mean, you, you, their, their mind went. 
their mind went. Dementia or Alzheimer's, like just things break down. The resurrected body, the mind and body is restored. The spirit is given a body that will not taste death. And when you see those people, you'll recognize them. You'll remember them. You'll hear their voice. It will be familiar. And the way they hug you, you'll go, that's what I've been waiting for for so long. This is the world that God has created for us. For those who put their trust in Jesus, he will create a new heavens and new earth. They will come together in marriage. And for all eternity, we will spend it together exploring, adventuring, discovering, creating. It's a wonderful picture of heaven that is honestly so different than how I personally pictured heaven growing up, and probably many of you. We're going to take communion. If you're um, not a Christian, you're just here visiting, or you're here for Mother's Day, or to, to see one of the children be dedicated. If you're not a Christian, you can just let the communion elements pass when they come. This is for people who follow Jesus. The last thing I want to do is tie all these pieces together, and they come together in in one event, the ascension. So earth divorced heaven. Earth rebelled against heaven and God's rule and reign. Earth went wayward. And the question is, does heaven give up on earth? Does God say, look at this wayward people, I am done with them. Get rid of them. No, the, the, the scriptures say that the faithful husband, the faithful groom, goes to find his wayward, adulterous bride, and he goes to save her, to restore her, to reconcile her. And the image is beautiful. The image is, there is a husband who is betrayed, and the wife divorced him. And the husband finds her and says, even though you divorced me, I'd like us to renew our vows. And he proposes once again. Now, how does he do that? The, sto- the scriptures tell us that he has to do battle against some enemies, some old enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And on the cross, the good husband fights the evil dragon on your behalf. And even though we were all wayward and rebellious, Jesus doesn't hold that divorce, divorce permanent. He wants to restore and renew all things, restore and renew the marriage vows. Now, in this, you get a glimpse of how all of this is working together. When Jesus comes, he takes his world, his reality, his realm, heaven, and he brings a part of it to earth. Jesus is going around proclaiming the kingdom of God is here. Jesus takes heaven down to earth. After the crucifixion and resurrection, an event that is central to Scripture, but also it's often overlooked, the ascension occurs. What is occurring at the ascension? And this will blow your mind on how we've so misconstrued the categories. In the ascension, Jesus is in a physical resurrected body. Okay? Physical resurrected body. And Jesus ascends into heaven where he's currently sitting at the right hand of the Father. At first, Jesus brings a part of heaven to earth. When Jesus ascends, he brings a part of us with him. He brings a piece of earth up there. He brings the physical to the spiritual. Now think about that for one moment. If you've just always pictured heaven as a spiritual reality, you need to know that there is a physical body there. 
The physical body of Jesus is in heaven. So however you're picturing heaven or the spiritual reality, it's not how scripture portrays it. There is a physical body in heaven and Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father where he rules, rules and reigns as king of heaven and king of earth. And one day he's going to return, create new heavens, new earth at the renewal of all things and heaven and earth will be married once again. And God will dwell with his people like he did in the garden. And that's the picture Revelation is pointing us to. It's greater than anything we could ever imagine. And if you're human, it's better than perfection. Because human beings aren't created and designed for absolute perfection. We're designed to be creatures of potential to create and discover. All of this is secured for us because our husband, Jesus, fights the dragon and the serpent on our behalf. And he goes to the cross. Let's stand as we take communion. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Lord, we remember that we were the wayward bride, but you sought us out. From heaven you came to renew the vows. Jesus says, when you take the cup, you're supposed to take it and continue to proclaim his death and resurrection until his return. Physical resurrection. Christ was the first fruits. He gives us a glimpse of what awaits all of us. And so, Lord, we thank you and we declare our allegiance to follow you until you return. If you need prayer for anything, we're going to have our prayer leaders up here. Mother's Day is great for some people horrible for others. If you need some encouragement or just want to pray with people, we want to acknowledge that they're there. Also, as we talk about heaven, oftentimes pain of loss comes up, and even though a message of heaven might be encouraging, we still, we still feel the pain and sting of death. Please come up for prayer in that. Let's close. Father God, we want to trust in you, and we want to live for eternity. We want to live for new heavens and new earth. Thank you that you're, you've created a place that is wonderfully human in every sense of the word. It is not a world that is static and stale and stagnant. It's not just a disembodied reality. It's a physical, spiritual world that's full of everything we know and love, Lord. May we praise you for all eternity, and may we praise you in the present now on this day. It is a good day. You've made it. You are a good God all of the time. We love you. Increase our hearts' uh, love for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.